0: Conflict, hypocrisy, favoritism, bad leadership, pushing away people God loves. When these words are used to describe the church, it makes us wonder what went wrong. Did you know all these problems existed in the early church as well? The difference is, When they addressed their issues in a healthy way, the church was able to thrive and change the world. In this series, God will equip us to do the same. This is a reading from Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, and together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he... He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostle's feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money also at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got from the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. And sometimes we don't realize the power of what we're playing with. I heard a story a while back that's a really sad story about a pastor in 19, right at the end of the Second World War, the the summer of the Second World War, 1945, up in Oregon. This pastor and his wife took some kids out to the countryside after church from Sunday school uh, to go and have a picnic. And as the pastor was parking his car, uh, the wife cried out from the field, honey, look what we found. And just as she cried that out, there was a massive explosion. Uh, what they had found was in a tree, a, a balloon bomb from the war. The the Japanese people had started sending these uh, hydrogen or helium-filled balloons um, over the Pacific Ocean into the States, hoping to drop bombs all over our country, and one of them had downed itself in this field in Oregon, and this bomb exploded when they went to go play with this balloon. The wife died, all these kids died. It was this massive tragedy where these people didn't realize the power of what they were playing with. I know it's a hard story to start a sermon with, but this is a hard text to look at in the scriptures because when we read this story of Ananias and Sapphira, you get this idea that a, a man and his wife were playing with something they did not realize was a powerful entity, which is the spirit of God and the church of Jesus Christ. Now in this series, we're going to be talking about different things that are conflict-causing in the church. Internal strife, we said last week, is a normal part of church life. And so what we're going to do these next five weeks is take different issues that exist within the church and normalize it and learn how to confront it so we can live in a healthy way on the other side. So today, we're starting with a doozy. I'm going to give you a statement that we'll put on the screen for you that is the first thing that we're going to have to confront as a people. And it's this, sin in our church... Is a ticking time bomb waiting to destroy us all. And you might think, okay, that's kind of harsh, right? Or where is the sin? Can you please tell us so we can avoid it, right? Sin in our church is a ticking time bomb waiting to destroy us all. There's a chance that you are listening in here or you're listening at home and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're in sin in your life. You, you've got some habits that you've picked up or you're in a relationship that's illicit or you're doing some things you know you shouldn't and you've been trying to do your best to, to navigate life and, and manage it. You're trying not to tell your spouse what you've gotten into. You're trying not to tell your small group what you've gotten into. You're trying to avoid talking to God about what you've gotten into. You've got this agreement with God or with your family or you're managing this whole thing. And you've got this sin in your life, but you feel like you have it managed. And if that's you, I'm talking to you. Sin in your life is a ticking time bomb waiting to destroy you and your family. And some of you have experienced that or are experiencing that with your kids or with your grandkids or with someone in your household or in your network. You see that they've caught got into some things, maybe in this COVID season. You see that they're engaging in some behaviors or some attitude stuff or some gossip or some substance abuse or whatever it is, and you're hoping they're going to come out okay, but at the same time, you know that the thing that they're involved with at any moment could explode and destroy their marriage, explode and destroy your family, explode and cause a lot of collateral damage around you. Some of you are on the other side of that. And it has exploded, and you're picking up the pieces, and you're trying to raise your kids, and you're trying to do your best to redeem what has happened after someone else's sin exploded in your household. And now you're left to pick up the mess that their sin made in your community, or in your extended family, or in your marriage bed, wherever it is. And today we're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and see what God has to teach us about how we can confront the sin in our life, confront the sin in our community, and get healthy as a result. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at Acts chapter 5. I know in here the Bibles are gone because they were germy. Your iPhone, if you want to use your iPhone, I notice it slides right into that little slot in front of you. So that's, you can pretend like that's a Bible in the rack and pull that out. Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in the Old Testament, though. I, I did a little study this week because I, I started thinking about everyone in the Bible that God killed instantly. We're not going to go through all of them, but I realize that every time God kills someone instantly in the scriptures, it's a controversial thing. Right? These are the things that if you're in college group, you have a Bible study, it's gonna come up, right? People are gonna ask you about Lot's wife, right? That's Genesis chapter 19, I think, Lot's wife. Uh, if you don't know the story, God has decided he's going to judge uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's gonna destroy it with his wrath because the sin and wickedness had come up against him. And Abraham is pleading, God, please save my family. Lot is there, my wife, Lot's wife is there, Lot's daughters are there. Help them escape. And God says, okay, I'm gonna withhold my wrath and let your family members escape. So God tells Lot and his wife and his daughters, you can run, but don't look back. So Lot's wife runs. Lot, wife, Lot runs. The girls run. And as they're running, all it says in the scriptures, in Genesis 19, is that, but Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. And I picture like Thanos on, uh, on Avengers, Like She just disintegrates. We read that passage and we think, Wait, what did she do that was worthy of the death penalty? And <laughs> she looked back, and now she's dead. Second Chronicles six. Is it Second Chronicles? Show me on the screen. What is the passage? Second Samuel six. Um, Uzza is a person, a name you may or may not remember. You probably talked about it in some Bible study, right? Uzzah was a man who was helping the Ark of the Covenant move from one location to another. And so Uzzah's walking down the road with the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place where God dwells. And as they're moving it, one of the ox that's driving the cart that's holding the Ark stumbles. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize the Ark so it doesn't fall off the cart. And as he touches the Ark, boom, like Ananias and Sapphira, he's gone. And God says, I've judged the wickedness in us' heart. And he's dead. It's like, wow, that seems harsh. And Ananias, Sapphira, Acts chapter, what, chapter five? I'm going to get these Bible verses right by five o'clock. Acts chapter five Ananias and Sapphira walk into the church assembly. They've seen some other people in the church have been liquidating some of their assets and giving all the money to the apostles for the good of the community. And so they say, let's get in on that game. They sell a property, they take the money and instead of giving it all to the apostles, they hold some back for themselves and bring the rest to the apostles and boom, one after another, they're both dead on the floor within three hours of each other. We read all these passages and we think, man, God, you killed some people for some reasons that we don't completely understand. And I think that's one of the reasons that as we read the end of the passage, it says great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. Because the primary message that we get when we read a passage like this is that God takes sin in his community very, very seriously. You know, a lot of times we think about this as like the Old Testament God, right? And we kind of feel like, okay, now Jesus came, and now it's all going to be like sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows and unicorns, right? And then Jesus starts a church. Uh, he ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. Everything's beautiful for a second. And then, boom, Ananias and Pharaoh are dead. And it's like, okay, this church is full of judgment and wrath too. If you continue reading in the New Testament, you see verse after verse that talks about this concept that God takes sin very seriously within his people. Last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, the sin that existed in the church at Corinth. One of the verses that we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 13, the apostle Paul says, expel the wicked person from among you. He says, a little bit of yeast works through the whole batch. You need to get rid of this person who's sinning. Get him out of your community because sinners should not exist within the body of Christ. And we think, well, hold on. This seems kind of judgmental. And that's the passage where Paul says, listen, we're not not calling you to judge people outside the church. Sinners sin, right? But we need to judge those inside the church is what Paul says. In the book of Titus, we get a similar idea with something that's not sexual sin. It's about division in the church. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says, warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them. And someone's gossiping, someone's coming causing division, someone's trying to cause a chasm in the church, call them out. They they start doing it again, you call them out. They start doing it again, get them out of here. Get them out. That person should not be part of the community. They're gonna destroy this beautiful thing that God has created. God takes sin in his community very, very seriously. I don't know if this sounds mean to you. <laughs> I'm a little nervous I have a real audience in front of me now if sounds mean to you. Uh, I was thinking this week of just some times in, in my ministry life where we've had to do this to people. It's very rare I remember one time, when uh, back in days, 20 years ago, maybe even more, in, the, in our student ministries, there was a, a kid who came in, a high school kid, and he, it became very evident very quickly that the only reason that this young man was in the high school ministry, he called himself a Christian, the only reason he was in there was to take advantage of, a, of as many girls as possible in as short of time as possible, and so we kicked him out, is that judgmental? It felt like we were protecting the sheep from a wolf in sheep's clothing, trying to devour and destroy the people in the community. It made a lot of sense in real life, but in theory, kicking out people just seems mean. I remember a guy probably 15 years ago who got caught up in this really weird false doctrine, and hey, people believe crazy stuff, right? All of us believe something crazy, right? This guy believed some crazy stuff, bad theology, and And then he just started feeling like it was his burden from the Lord to teach this bad theology to others. And so we'd be in a Sunday school class and he'd come up and he'd grab the mic and start like teaching against what the teachers in the class were teaching. We're like, hey man, you got to not do that. That's not what this is for, right? We found him in the parking lot one time. He had gathered up all the parking lot workers and he was spouting this false theology about angels and healing and all this weird stuff. And we tried to stop him. We tried to stop him. He said he would not stop. This was God's mission on his life was to teach some errant doctrine to the church. And so we booted him. So we don't we can't have you sowing division in this community. If you want to repent, come on back, right? Calm down. But if you're gonna be here, you can't be here destroying people's faith. That's not gonna be it's not gonna be healthy. You know, if you've had someone in your family that's got caught into sin and and they didn't repent and they spiraled out of control, right, with your spouse, with substance abuse or with an affair or whatever it was, and they never let go. You know how destructive their behavior was. It caused a chasm between you and them, between you and your kids, them and their kids, you and your extended family, you and their extended family. Their sin exploded like that time bomb. And it ruins everything. I think this is why God is saying if this is part of the church, you address it, you get someone to stop, and if they won't, you get them out. Of there Before their sin just destroys everything. You know, if you're someone today who, who's in a season that you're in sin and you don't want get to out, get out, let me make this personal for you. If there is sin that exists in your life, get it out before it destroys you. Get it out. Confess your sin, right? First John 1.9, confess your sin. God is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But this is what the church is all about, right? We are people who are saved by the grace of Jesus. All of us have sinned, right? All of us. Raise your hand if you have not sinned. We'll talk afterwards, right? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve death. None of us deserve to be here, right? To stand in the presence of God and sing praises to the name of the one who is holy, who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who made us into a people. None of us deserve to be here. And yet the gospel of Jesus is that Christ died to save sinners, Paul says, of which I am the worst, and he's made us clean by his grace. Now, 1 Peter 3, says, he himself has, he who knew no sin, wait, somebody tell me 1 Peter 3, right? Uh, by his stripes we are he- healed. He who knew no sin bore our sin on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He died for us. But If you're in sin and you're not confessing it, this is an area in your life that you have not released over to the Lord. And if you release it over to the Lord, you know what he'll do? He'll take it away. Right? God says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I'll remove your transgressions from you. I will purify you. I will cleanse you. All the stuff you're holding onto, you're terrified of what's gonna happen if you confess. I'm telling you, it's gonna be worse if you don't. Confess your sin and freedom and restoration will start to come in your life but if you don't, it's going to explode within you and kill you, your community, your friends, your family. It's it's messy. And if you don't believe me, I can connect you with a 100 people in our church. Maybe I can't connect you to 100. I can connect you with a dozen people in our church <laughs> who someone else's sin exploded in their family and now their extended family is destroyed and trying to pick up the pieces. Right, by the grace of God, God restores, God does beautiful things, but. Don't be the reason that your legacy is tarnished. Don't be the reason that your grandkids hate you. Don't be the reason that your great grandkids don't walk with Jesus because you refused to confess your sin today. You read this passage, and we are filled with fear because sinners walk into the church and God kills them on the spot. Can you imagine what would happen today if sinners walked into the church and God killed them on the spot? we'd have less than this many people in the room. <laughs> we don't be dead. But right, that's one of the questions that I read this passage, and I think, what is, what is happening here? Like why, the question I wrote down is, what was it about Ananias' and Sapphira's sin? What was it about their sin that was so grievous that God had to kill them without warning? Right, like I said, it seemed a little extreme. And even Peter's response to the whole thing, he seemed kind of complicit in their death. Right? Like, I feel like Peter could have said, if he knew they were lying, Peter could have said, Ananias, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm about to ask you a simple question. Think about it before you answer, because if you answer it wrong, God will kill you, right? Is this all the money, right? He could have done it that way. When Sapphira came in and Peter just says, he, he like hides the truth. What if he would have started it by saying, Sapphira, Sapphira, hey, just so you know, I asked your husband a question three hours ago. He's dead now. God killed him. I'm going to ask you the same question. Is it all the money, right? He could have framed it that way, but he didn't. There's something about this story that almost feels like God wanted to kill these people on purpose to teach a lesson to us 2,000 years later. What is God trying to teach us through this story? Because the truth is, it stinks when God destroys people because of their sin. It's so hard. If you have a family where someone's sinned, you know that it, it stinks on the other side of their sin. You wish they would have repented. You wish they would have done the right thing. You wish they would have come to their senses, right? I'm thinking of people in my mind right now who did dumb things, grievous things, and then they came to their senses. They confessed to their wife, and now things are going a lot better. And I can think of other people in the same scenario who refused to repent, and now their faith is shipwrecked, and their heart has grown cold, and they're blaming the church for some reason. Why does God allow people to die in their sin, so to speak? Why doesn't it bring us all back to repentance? What lesson is he trying to teach us here? Some of us have people in our own families who have sinned. They've walked away from the Lord. They're cold. They're bitter. They're angry. We just feel like, God, warm their heart. (laughs) God, show up. Do some, Bring life, not death, to my loved one. I was reading all the the stories of people who died suddenly in the Bible. Uh, Seems like I have a really messed up hobby. But I was reading all the stories of everybody died suddenly in the Bible last week, and and I started to notice a theme emerging. Because the question, of course, is like, why, why did those people die? Why did they die so suddenly? All that. And I noticed that in every story that I, I was reading where someone died suddenly in the Bible, the person was encountering something extremely holy. Right? Like, God's wrath being poured down on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We know uh, when God talks to Moses, he says, you can't look directly at me because no one can see my face and live, right? If God's glorious presence is destructive to humankind, just imagine how destructive his wrath is when he pours it out in its fullness. And so part of it feels like as Lot and his family are running away, God is saying, I'm about to pour down my wrath on a city, like a volcano, and destroy it, right? If you even take a glimpse of it, you'll die. Trust me, don't turn back because the moment you look, boom, right? It's, it's like that Indiana Jones scene with the face melting and all that, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, it's so holy that you can't look at it, and they encountered something holy, right? Uzzah, that's the story of the, the moral of the Uzzah story, right? The Ark of the Covenant is the thing in the, in the Indiana Jones movie, right? This thing that God's presence dwells in so deeply that if you touch it, doesn't matter if there's a good reason or bad. If you touch it, you're dead, right no one ever gets mad at god that they touch something that kills people and they die right it's like well you're a bonehead don't touch that it'll kill you right you find like a landmine don't touch it right walk away call the authorities right don't play with dangerous things but god's glory and god's holiness and god's presence in the scriptures is a dangerous thing that you don't even want to get near because you'll die in fact in the old testament there was a group called the levites who were the people who were equipped especially by the lord To handle the holy things of God. Think about the Holy of Holies and the Day of Atonement. There's once a day that one priest from the Levitical line can walk into the most holy place and in a certain way approach the throne of God and not die. But even then, they tie a rope to him, right? So if he dies, they could drag him out and send another priest in because God's holiness will kill you if you get close enough. And one thing I noticed this week is that that word Levite, the Levitical people, shows up in Acts uh, right here next to the Ananias and Sapphira story. Right, just a verse before in chapter 4, we hear a story of someone who's similar to Ananias and Sapphira, but 180 degrees different too. This guy Joseph. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You know, you don't hear anything else about this guy except the fact that he's a Levite and then he did the same thing as Ananias and Sapphira, but he lived and he didn't lie and he lived. I was wondering this week, why, why does it matter that Joseph was a Levite? And I was thinking, you know, I, I wonder if that's supposed to pique our interest. I think, you know what? There's something holy happening in the book of Acts that should not be taken lightly. Like the church of Jesus, just like the glory of God in the Ark of the Covenant, just like the wrath of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, the the church of Jesus Christ, the place where God dwells on earth, is a holy thing that if you mishandle it, it will kill you. seems to be the moral of the Ananias and Sapphira story. We'll put this on the screen so you can read it. The community called the church is the place where God dwells on earth. Which means that we need to navigate life here in this community with reverence and with fear. A lot of times you think about the, the church of Jesus, you don't think about reverence and fear, right? You come to church, it's like going to the movies, right? Except we don't go to the movies, right? But now you go to the church, right? You come in here, you listen to some music, you hear a message, this is fun, right? That's, that's great. But a lot of times we, we forget that the church of Jesus, the community of believers called Christians, we are the place where the glory of God dwells on earth. This comes up over and over in the, in the epistles in the New Testament. Even Jesus himself, when he's talking about church discipline and saying there are going to be some people you need to kick out of your church because they're sinners and they won't repent. Jesus says, go and use my authority to get them out of your midst. He says, where two or more are gathered, I'm with you also. I'm with you. I'm with you in power when you exercise discipline over someone in your body. I am with you in presence, the Old Testament says. When we worship, God inhabits the praises of his people. We know there are different things that we do when we gather called sacraments that are sacred things we do that we do not deal with lightly. We're not going to make fun of communion. We're not going to make fun of baptism. We're going to celebrate these things with joy but with reverence because God's presence is with us in a special way as we hold these communion elements And so we're going to, in reverence, come before the Lord and confess our sin and rejoice in the covenant we have with him. But we're going to remember the words from Corinthians that some people in church history took communion in an improper manner and they're dead now because this is a weighty thing. The holiness and and glory of God is with us as we partake of these things as we baptize, the presence of God is with us as we baptize people into the body. God is agreeing with us. Yes, these people are believers. They're part of this covenant community. And when we kick people out because they won't repent and they're being destructive to themselves and others, God is with us. And we need to handle these things with reverence and with awe. I promise you, as a leader in this church, we are never gonna play fast and loose with something like church discipline. You know, we don't kick people out for fun. It's never fun, I promise. Uh, We're going to take very seriously when someone needs to be removed. I think of every instance that we've had to do this formally, especially with adults, right, where... This is a process. We we confront them. We bring other people. We confront them. We bring it to the elders. We pray for them. We commit to continuing in prayer for them. We're praying they will come to their senses. But then when they don't, we have to have a hard conversation and remove them. And it feels like when we remove people from the church, we're giving them a message that is Christians are people who repent of their sin. Since you refuse to repent, we are going to treat you like you're not one of us because maybe you aren't. So think about that. It's a weighty thing that we do when we deal actively with the sin of others. And so that's why it falls on ourselves, primarily to be accountable for our own sins. And we come to church and we confess our sins together and we experience the cleanliness that God brings us. He cleanses us from our sins as we confess. Right, if you're someone today, you're in sin right now, you need to get rid of it, right? If you need to get rid of it, this is my message for you. If there is sin in your life, repent and experience the beauty of restoration. You know, we will always be a church that when sinners repent, we welcome them back, like the prodigal son with open arms, right? Some people, their sins are dangerous things, so we need boundaries, and of course, right? But we, we partner with what God says in the scriptures where he says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Right? When, and someone comes to their senses and comes back to the Lord. We welcome them back. Right? Everyone I've talked to who's had sin in their family, they say, all I want is for my loved one to repent of their sin. And if they do, they could come on back. But we just can't exist in a relationship right now. It's too dangerous what they're in. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting other people. We need to keep them at arms length. If there's sin in your life, repent and experience the beauty of restoration. At the same time, if your brother or sister falls into sin, I want to challenge you to confront their sin with humility and fear. I say fear uh, because I know there's some people who love to confront other people of their sin, right? If you love to confront people, you're not probably not a person who's supposed to confront people, right? Those of you who are called to confront people are probably people who hate it you don't want to. And yet you start feeling this burning desire from the Lord. I think, I am supposed to bring this up. I'm scared it's going to ruin the relationship. I'm scared they're going to go off the deep end. I feel like this is the only thing that I can do. I'm going to get wisdom. I'm going to pray. And then as you get wisdom from the community, you realize, okay, we need to talk to this person about their sin. And with fear and trembling, you have the conversation. And with humility. Right, this is the passage we always talk about with judgment, where Jesus says, before you go and get the speck out of your brother's eye... Why don't you take the log out of your own eye first, right? And so before you go and confront someone else's sin, do some introspective work and deal with your own in humility, in reverence, in fear, and be part of the solution. I don't know people in this room who have had to be part of the solution or try to. We've sat down with folks who are sinning, who are ruining their families, and we go have hard conversations, and like Jesus says, who knows, maybe they'll listen, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And if that's you, move forward with reverence and with fear. And the bottom line, I'll leave you with this, is that our church, if our church is going to be healthy, we need to do the beautiful work of keeping it holy. That's true of your life. If your life is going to be healthy, you need to do the beautiful hard work of keeping holiness in front of you in your life. And if this community is going to be a healthy community, we need to do the hard work of keeping it holy, which means, first and foremost, being confessors of sin all the time. Martin Luther said this, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. That's the whole life. It's not the start. It's not the entry point to Christianity. It's all of it. Living as a confessing person, living as an open person, always bringing your sin before the Lord and letting him take it away, always rejoicing in the gospel that you are freed because Christ just loves to take it and cast it into the depths. Let go of your sin today, whether you've got these little stains of sin or there's something heavy you're carrying, give it to him. Give it to him even now. And we're gonna take some time in our our service right now to to give all of us a chance to sit before the Lord and and have a posture of confession. And we're gonna have some music playing in the background and and you've got some time right now as the song is going on, just examine your life. Ask God to show you any wicked ways in you and bring it to him. And then I'll come up and I'll walk us through a process of confession and repentance and realizing that we've been absolved of our sin because our great high priest Jesus has paid it all us. And so sit, reflect, confess, and I'll come and I'll read some scripture for us in a minute. Sometimes it's hard to know what words to use to bring our sin before the Lord. And so I want to take a moment and read 12 verses from a familiar psalm. Uh, this is from King David. After he fell into it big with uh, sins of abuse of power and adultery and murder and cover up and And somebody in the faith community stood before him and confronted him, and he broke down and confessed. And these are the words of David in Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot away my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and wherever you are today I want to pray for us that that God would give us the grace and the courage to confess and God would be good to show us the beauty of restoration let's pray together